The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to the Women in MarTech Week on the MarTech Podcast. This week, we're talking to seven successful lady marketers to understand how they've navigated their way up the corporate ladder to become some of the most prominent female marketers in the MarTech community. Joining us today is Vicki Brackle, who is the Vice President of Integrated Marketing at MNI Targeted Media, which is a media planning and buying solution that identifies and targets precise audiences across platforms connecting brands with the consumers they need to reach. Prior to her current role, Vicki held a variety of managerial and executive roles spanning across companies that are CPG agencies and professional services. Here's our interview with Vicki Brackle, Vice President of Integrated Marketing at MNI Targeted Media. Vicki, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Hi, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk to another successful female marketer. So thank you for taking part in this week and for being a role model for the other lady marketers. Thank you. I look forward to it and your questions. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll take it easy on you. Let's start with an easy one. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into marketing. It's actually a really fun and interesting story. I'll try to keep it brief. I was in procurement at the time at Pepsi-Cola, and that meant that I spent a lot of my time in plants and at paperboard and canned plants, aluminum plants, and I enjoyed that. It was right out of business school. This was during the time when Star Wars Episode One was coming out, and if anybody recalls, there was a big program that Pepsi ran called the Star Wars Can Series. It was a collectible can series, 24, if I remember correctly of different characters. And it was quite a big deal to run that during summer timeframe because of the high volume that runs during the summer. As you can imagine, consumers buy a lot of Pepsi-Cola products during that time. So I was in procurement and responsible for the change out of those characters and the placement of those in the packaging. And at a meeting with about 40 people and the CMO at that time, a great guy by the name of Dave Berwick, who was the CMO, was sitting in the room. And my boss was saying, you know what, it's just going to be too hard for us to do the advanced amount of production that we need to do in order to have enough stock available during the summer with all these can changes, because you have to change the line. And I inadvertently spoke up from the back of the room and said, no, I think that's possible. I've done the spreadsheet. 
And it was that crowning moment where you step forward and you're convinced that you can do something as a young person. And they made me go do it. And after that, that CMO then hired me into marketing. And therefore, I ended up in marketing as an associate marketer right out of procurement, which is an unusual route to take. So what I'm picturing in my head is you come fresh off the line, you're still wearing your hard hat, and you shoot your mouth off at an executive meeting. And the next thing you know, you're there saying, fine, you go do marketing. (laughs) Kind of. I was a little better dressed, I will say. but The hard hat was a polished hard hat. (laughs) Correct. Right. So your career started in procurement. You're in more of an operational role. What was the initial role in marketing that you were taking on? What were your responsibilities at PepsiCo? I was very lucky in that I got to be on a plum project, which was, if you'll remember Pepsi stuff, the times of the Harrier jet giveaway and collecting points, we decided in 1998, we were going to take that online. And in 1998, online wasn't what it is like today. Nobody really understood what a song download was. We were all still dialing up, listening to those funny little sounds that you got when you connected. And my job was to really launch and run that program and really communicate to consumers how valuable digital downloads would be. So we were really at the cutting edge of taking the physical packaging and the product with alphanumeric codes under the caps and delivering music downloads with Yahoo as a partner and building a whole digital integrated experience. And it was an amazing ride, I can tell you. That was my first two and a half years in marketing was running PepsiStuff.com. And I learned everything about the company and marketing in those two and a half years, I think. So early on in your career, you have a consumer packaged goods experience. You're working at PepsiCo. You make the transition from procurement to marketing. And you have some understanding of the dynamics of the product creation, and you're really now focused a little more on not only the packaging, but you're starting to get into a technological medium. Talk to me about how that experience early on in your career, being faced with the rise of technology, helped vault you forward in your career. What it did for me is made me realize that it's okay to be on the cusp It's okay to be a little bit ahead. It's okay not to know all the answers and to figure it out as you're going, especially when you're diving into a brand new space. Nobody could have imagined that today in 2019, you'll have a smartphone attached to your hand or that you'll have Google Glass. There was just no vision of that. We were just trying to make some great campaigns. But the fact that we were able to deliver emoticons and branded skin video and audio players was a very big deal at that time. So for me, it made me realize I always want to be on the cusp of what's to come. I understand what you're saying with the need to not necessarily be on the cutting edge, but be on the forefront of applicable technology. It makes a lot of sense. And early on working at Pepsi during the rise of the internet, I could see how that would be not only an interesting role to have, but also set you up to have more of a technology focus moving forward. Talk to me about how you took your consumer packaged goods experience and the technology experience you gained at Pepsi. And how did that vault you forward into your next role, which was more of an executive role? So having been on the client side for about nine years, I parlayed that into being on the agency side of things. So from that perspective, 
I really was able to work with primarily a big financial institution, as well as the biggest retailer in America at this point in time. And in both those cases, there was a lot of intricacy in terms of the technology that each of those institutions wielded and the data that they were also after and the insights. So for me, it was really a pretty easy transition because I knew what clients were looking for and what they were after, but was able to put myself in their shoes as a consultant, as it were, from an agency perspective. So the interesting thing to me about this is at Pepsi, and I'm just looking at titles on your LinkedIn profile, I get that you have experience working with large brands, you're taking in data, you're understanding technology, you're an in-house marketer. Not only did you make a transition to being a consultant, right, more of a service provider, but the title that you held went from senior manager to SVP, which I infer means that you have more of a leadership role and they're now responsible for managing a team. Am I reading the change in titles right? And tell me about that transition and how you managed changing industries, going from in-house to a service provider, and you're responsible from being a, either managing a small team to a, a relatively large team. Well, at PepsiCo, while I was a senior manager, I did have to work across the organization in a matrix format with probably more than 40 different touch points. So when I made the transition to the agency side, it wasn't very hard for me because I managed multiple agencies that mirrored the same setup as I had in my previous role. I just now was responsible for them getting as much revenue as they could and delivering the best work to the client. So I'm glad you picked up on it. It seems very different, but it was not actually in real life that different. Maybe this is from my days working at eBay, where the organizational structure was very clear. It was manager, senior manager, director, senior director, VP, SVP. So I'm looking at your titles and be like, God, senior manager, SVP, that's like six level functions ahead. That's 10 to 15 years of career entitling from how I think of it. And you made that jump in one career move. The difference is, and you probably know this, on the traditional CPG brands like P&G, PepsiCo, they have a very strict way of going up in the system. And so a senior manager is actually your first level of the executive title, mm -hmm. which most people don't know, but then it's easy to transition into a senior vice president or a vice president role on the agency side. Yeah. So there's a nomenclature difference there. Talk to me a little bit about some of the experiences you had working at an agency. What were you responsible for and how did you like your agency experience? So I was very lucky in that I was at the time managing seven different agencies for what is now probably the number one or number two financial institution and consumer bank in the country. So the role was to ensure the best work across these seven agencies and manage all the line items. If you can think about this particular bank was spending probably about a billion dollars in advertising, both between the agency and the paid media that they were putting it against. The number of line items in terms of experiential, in terms of digital, in terms of everything from what is the branding on their museum and their building, so there were, I think at one point, 620 line items, or call it swim lanes, that I was managing across a team of seven agencies. 
So it's not a typical account management role in an agency, although I had two or three sets of customers in my mind. I had my agency executives who obviously were revenue focused, and I had everyday people who worked on the account. They were my second kind of client. And then, of course, the clients with whom I was the direct liaise for those seven agencies. So a real job, as it were, being an ombudsman, being a translator, and being the glue that fits everything. It sounds like the experience working with your cross-functional partners prepared you to take on this role, which isn't a traditional account management agency roles, but more of a liaison and coordinator amongst multiple agencies. That is correct. And truthfully, it was really, really hard. And I didn't know a lot about the financial industry. So that was a huge learning curve. I basically committed myself to knowing every acronym and every line of business that exists in a huge, large financial institution. But also then I needed to understand the strengths as well as everything that each one of these agencies specialized in. So truthfully, I didn't get out much during those days. (laughs) (laughs) That actually brings up an interesting point. You're getting into the executive portion of your career working at an agency. Eventually, you work back in-house. Talk to me a little bit about the decision to go back in-house as opposed to staying in the agency lifestyle. And how did that affect the balance that you had as an executive and the responsibilities you had at home and in your personal life? I didn't have much of a personal life during this time. I mean, everything was work. And that was intentionally so. I was in my late 20s, early 30s at this point, And that's what I was focused on. And I was focused on doing as much as possible in as short a possible time and learning as much as I could along the way. And that's the way I've sort of always been wired. And frankly, in 2008, when the market fell apart, I was working at that point with the biggest retailer in the country, and the program got shut down, and I found myself without a job, as happens in agencies often when you lose the business. So the role at Hearst to launch an e-reader, which coming back full circle to technology and being on the cusp, was really a very interesting thing. And so much out of my comfort zone, but the idea of being able to bring essentially what the iPad became and has become to the reading public was really interesting to me. So that's why I went back and took this role at really what was a startup within a huge publishing corporation. What I'm hearing is that organizationally, you're still working in a large, very matrixed organization, but this is a role that allowed you to take advantage of the experience you had in product development, some of the things that you learned while at Pepsi, also some of your technological knowledge, but it allowed you to be a little bit more nimble and a little bit more innovative because of the line of the product. You said it perfectly, yes. So talk to me about that experience and what were some of the things you learned working at a startup within a large organization? There's positives and I think some really important lessons that I learned about startups in a big organization. One, if you're funded in a way that's not like a startup, the team tends to not act like a startup. So you become a little bit more comfortable than other startups that I've been at have operated. So we were extremely well-funded. We had the resources of a huge corporation. And the things that I learned there were 
the incredible team that I had around me, they were all technology folks, primarily technology folks, brilliant, in fact from the likes of AOL and Google everywhere. And to create from scratch software for e-reading that would really replicate the reader experience and watching how that came about. And then as the marketer trying to translate that into the consumer demand was incredible. This all being said, we were doing really well. And this is the other lesson. You can be doing really well and you can have a product that's a winner and you can go to CES and get as much press as you could possibly get. And the next week, Apple comes out with the iPad and pretty much you're done the next week. So the one thing I'll say is the technology continues to exist at another corporation for their publishing needs. So that was not a waste, but it did teach me that you can have a winning product, but there might be the guy or the gal next to you, which has a better product. Yeah, I think that's an interesting learning. One, damn you, Steve Jobs. (laughs) That thing is brilliant. And sometimes people either have other assets, a better brand reputation, or are able to take the technology just a step further. Obviously, it had an impact on your career. Talk to me about how you dealt with the adversity of working so hard to create and produce a product and then have it be essentially sounds like the rug was pulled out from under you in terms of how the product would be adopted because of some of the macro competitive forces. How did you deal with that experience? After the financial problems in 2008, I think I had already become nimble because I felt I was sort of bulletproof and the truth is none of us are. So when this happened, your phrase, having the carpet pulled out from under you is exactly how it felt because we all walked into work one day and that was it. I don't want to say out on the street, but you certainly had a little more free time than you did the day before. And it was really hard because we were all so invested in creating something from scratch and creating the brand and being right on the edge of getting it big and seeing a financial win for ourselves as well, because we all had equity was hard the first couple of days, not going to lie. But then you kind of think to yourself and you look at all those quotes that are all positive and have cute little furry animals on them. And you think to yourself, you know what? So many people that have been successful, like you mentioned, Steve Jobs, you have to fail and you have to fail forward and fail fast and just move on and learn what you learned. It's not like you unlearn all the things that I just did. And it doesn't mean they weren't worthwhile. That's what I took from it. I mentioned the startup that I launched a bunch on this podcast. Somebody actually called me out the other day saying, we know that you started a guitar lesson startup, but I'm going to reference it again. You mentioned the notion of failing forward and taking the learnings that you have. One of the things that I feel like successful business people are able to do is decouple their efforts and the learnings from the end results, right? Like you can't predict what the business results are. And a lot of times they're out of your control, whether it's funding, other people's decision-making process, macro factors. In your case, Steve Jobs, a visionary business person, launched a competitive product that was a world-changing product. Right. That's just a bad beat and bad luck. You know, that's just going up against a great team. But being able to deal with that personally and move on and not take it personally and not investing the results as your fault is a trait that I see in a lot of strong leaders. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? 
Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then. And instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. Tell me how you, as you mentioned, failed forward. What was the next role in your career and how did you recover from that experience? Well, at that point, I had gotten myself locked into an apartment in New York City. And so as most people who have lived in New York City know, you're pretty motivated pretty quickly to find another job. You got to pay the rent. You got to pay the rent. That's right. And I was so lucky. And this is something that I say... Every role I've pretty much ever had has come through the word of mouth. And so someone called me and said, hey, I just had this conversation with these really interesting women. They have an agency that is focused on marketing to women. And I thought to myself, wow, there's a niche I'd like to be involved in. So I joined this creative duo that had been up and down Madison Avenue and had created their own shop. And we're looking to make it bigger and more strategic in terms of their business development and in terms of the quality of the output and what they were bringing to clients. So I joined as sort of the third exec, as it were, managing the agency. That was kind of my first owning an agency and really got into the, I love leading teams. So that was a great experience for me. And also, once again, I knew marketing and I knew marketing to audiences. But in this case, I learned a lot about the female consumer that I didn't previously necessarily know as deep. So another learning. It's interesting to hear that you went from a startup within a startup. And I'll be honest, I feel like a lot of people overuse that term. Oh, I worked at a startup in a large company. And you called out specifically, if it's not funded like a startup, it doesn't act like one. But you work in an environment where you were running a startup with support from a larger organization to a small professional services business where I'm imagining you're going to be more bootstrapped because you don't have the Hearst company behind you picking up the tab. Talk to me about how you dealt with the pressure of working in a smaller organization where your work has a direct impact on the bottom line and the overall success of the company. This was part of what made it very exciting for me to join Womankind was 
not only would I be able to run accounts and be in charge of accounts, but also to head up strategy as well as to make sure that the accounting got done on time and that clients got their bills and they were the right amount and that we were tracking hours the right way. And if we had something wrong with the office, that somebody was taking care of it. So to me, it was, and I say this a lot when people ask me what's important and why do I love my job today and my jobs in the past, every single day is different. I don't know what's going to come. If I knew that I had to do taxes every day for people, that's not me. I have a lot of respect for people who do that. But for me, the change of every day and the unknown is what makes me get out of bed and drive to work. I think we're similarly motivated there. Obviously, you know, the current company that we work in are drastically different. I'm more of a solopreneur. You work at a relatively large company, but the variability of work is important to me. And I think that that's one of the things that you've mentioned a few times is having worked for a few agencies, being able to work with different people in organizations, build teams and create something is a theme that I'm hearing across a lot of your experiences. Yes. So I look for this when I'm hiring curiosity. And I know many people look for that in candidates, but somebody who's always willing to go beyond because they're interested in learning and because that's what ignites their energy is really important to me and keeps me going. So I think you're right. So it sounds like you had a positive experience working at the female-focused agency, working at Womankind, but it wasn't a long-lasting stop in your career. After the Hearst Corporation experience, you had a couple of stops that were relatively short. Talk to me about what you were doing and the reason between some of the shorter lasting career stints that you had. I think early in my career at PepsiCo and then Omnicom, I had longer stints. So with nine years and five years respectively, I was looking for somewhere to really be. And that's not necessarily the way the marketplace is anymore, but it is the way I was raised. My mother worked at a large publisher for a long time, my father the same. So maybe that influenced my drive to try to find a home, really, where I felt comfortable and could be for a longer period of time. But that being said, I enjoyed every one of these spots. And as you pointed out, the rug was sort of pulled out from under me when I went to Hearst and the startup within a large corporation. The stints in between... A man by the name of Bill Applebaum, again, through word of mouth, found me and said, hey, I have this amazing venture firm with myself and five guys. And he happened to be a titan of industry, actually of Titan Outdoor. If you know Titan Outdoor, Mm -hmm. if you're walking around New York City, one of the biggest out-of-home media companies in the country, he really built that from a smaller company to the incredible powerhouse that it is today. And he said to me, we've got this money and we've got these four guys and we need an executive to kind of parachute into a couple of these companies that we're looking at and investing in and just to make sure everything's happening the way we want it to happen. And at that point, I was at Womenkind and I was having a great time and working on incredible clients like TD Ameritrade and Citibank. And it's not every day that a billionaire comes to you and says, hey, will you work for me? Happens to be he's incredibly cool and one of the most intelligent, energizing, and inspiring human beings I've ever had the pleasure to work for. So I said yes, actually, after our second coffee meeting, 
because I thought this is a person who's a mover and a shaker and I'm going to learn a lot from them. So that's what I did. And I parachuted into three separate companies with different roles. The first one was Skinny Water, which was a up-and-coming competitor to Vitamin Water. I played the role of CMO for a little over a year. Unfortunately, that company didn't survive. And then I was placed into another agency, actually, acting as chief operating officer. And within the first three months, I discovered that the chief operating officer was cheating the investors. So I had to unwind that company. And I can tell you that throughout this conversation, we've been talking about lessons. And you would think, oh, my God, that's terrible. She had to unwind a company. Well, it was terrible. But I will tell you that it was an incredible learning lesson in terms of how to deal with employees, how to do that respectfully, how to deal with creditors, how to deal with partners who have commitments from you. And it really required a lot of skills that I had to hone during that time. So I'm thankful it was a very difficult period and not what I really wanted, obviously. But again, I learned from it. And I went from there to MNI Targeted Media. So before we talk about what you're doing today at MNI, my takeaway here is that you essentially were recruited away by literally a titan of industry, but a, a billionaire to take on these short-term roles, which gave you a handful of other operating experience as a marketer, as a COO, not just necessarily dealing with companies that were up and to the right, but startups and companies that had financial problems. What was the reason after that experience for you to head towards MNI, and why did you think that it was the right fit for you? So Bill Applebaum, who is a gentleman, I'm still dear friends with him, and we talk about business issues all the time, he decided to retire. So it was really kind of an interesting time because at the same time, I discovered that I was going to have my first child. So it really all worked out quite well. And after my baby was four months old, I decided, oh my gosh, I got to get back in the game. And again, somebody came to me and said, there's this company called MNI Targeted Media. And I don't know that you'd be interested, but what do you think about talking to them? And the rest is sort of history. I had always bought media and had media teams to advise me on what to buy. But I had never been in the media business, per se. And the idea that it was a very strong sales organization, but a very, very hot growing digital company was another uncomfortable place to put myself where I knew that I would learn a lot. And for the four plus years that I have been here, it's been that every single day. So it was the right decision. So tell me specifically, now that you're moving towards a technology-driven services business, how have you found this role to contrast with some of the other roles that you had earlier in your experience? And what did those roles lead up to that allowed you to be successful at MNI? I've been fortunate enough to be successful at MNI because the diverse responsibilities that I have and really the role I think that I've created for myself and for my team as the, and I'm definitely plagiarizing using these words, connective tissue of the organization is really built upon all those other roles where I had to bring people together to a unified approach, strategy, et cetera. 
in our organization, internally at least, we have about 80 salespeople in over 43 offices around the country. We have about 60 in corporate headquarters here in Stamford, Connecticut. And if you can imagine in our digital space that when I got here, we were rolling out our programmatic solution, and I didn't even know what programmatic meant. But today, we are partnering with Nativo on small advertiser special offers and offers for clients that every day there's something different. And like the product that we sell, which is digital, and that means a lot of different things to different people, that our brand evolves every day. So I've been lucky enough, and we just recently relaunched our brand. You know, I am a brand marketer at heart. I am a jack of a lot of different trades, but I really believe in brand and its power to connect. So as a B2B company with over 1,200 clients a year, building a strong brand and rolling it out internally so that every one of my 80 salespeople in every market around this country is saying the same language, telling our clients our value proposition has been incredibly rewarding. So talk to me about how your experience across your career have shaped you as a leader. And then what advice do you have for younger women who are working in marketing and working in technology that aspire to be executives like yourself? Over the course of my career, whether it was intentional or not, I always tried to do different things. And I think I've been really eager to do that. And that has made me what I think to be an effective leader because I understand different points of view. I find myself to be a translator a lot of times. When I'm talking to our IT folks or our digital team, my primary role is to translate. So I've had to do that in all of my roles and translate that into a clean, clear, and concise message for clients and for their consumers and customers. So every one of those broad experiences in different categories and types of roles, whether they were senior or more junior and scrappy roles, startups, et cetera, has given me the variability that you need as a leader to understand different points of view. So it may not be that different than what other female leaders will say, but always be willing to stretch, be willing to be scared, be willing to be uncomfortable, and be brave. There is this stat out there or it's circling around, I'm sure you've read about it, Ben, that when it comes to new jobs, that men will have, I think, 60% of the qualifications and they'll go for the job and take the interview. And the majority of women, unless they fit every single bullet point on the job requisition, won't even go after the job. So I'm advocating that if you've got 50 or 60% of the skills and you're incredibly intelligent and a go-getter, do what men do. I don't know why we're any different. So again, confront your fears, always be willing to stretch and be brave. Yeah, I think on the fundamental level, one of the things that I hear from women executives is that the need to sell your strengths is something that is an underutilized skill for the women that they work with. And understanding that the people that you're competing against to get a job, male or female, likely don't have the perfect qualifications. So if you don't, you should still sell yourself and put your best foot forward. Even if you're not a 10 out of 10 for the qualifications, likely no one is. You got to play to your strengths. 
Yeah, you have to play to your strengths. And I think what often gets missed many times these days when people are looking for candidates, they want exactly the type of experience that they're looking for. And I guess I understand that to some extent. If you're looking for a marketer in SaaS, sure. But my point is, aren't you missing a little bit by not looking beyond the scope or the category that you're sourcing for? I mean, there's so many wonderful ideas and different ways of doing things from a variety of industries. I think it's myopic, frankly, to only look for the very specific qualifications of having the exact experience of what you're trying to do. And of course, I get that. But I also think you have to be a little bit more open because, quite frankly, most people can learn about a product or about a service. And if they're really good at marketing and really good at their job, that's going to be ubiquitous, whatever the product or service is. I think that's great advice. And it goes back into, you know, selling the skills that you have and understanding that you can learn skills while in a job is also something that's valuable and hopefully can help people that are a little nervous about applying to put that best foot forward. Well, Vicki, let me just say, you know, I appreciate hearing your story. I appreciate that you've taken the time to join the podcast and serve as a mentor for the people on your team, male and female, but also being an executive in the marketing and technology space, serving as a role model for some of the younger women as well. So thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. All right. That wraps up this episode of the Women in MarTech Week on the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Vicki Brackle, the Vice President of Integrated Marketing at MNI Targeted Media for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Vicki, you can find a link to her LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact her on Twitter, where her handle is Birdie Talk, B-I-R-D-Y-T-A-L-K, or you could visit her company's website, which is MNI.com. A couple of links that I want to tell you about in our show notes. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, don't worry about it. We've got you covered. Just head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. If you're a subscriber to the Martech Podcast, thanks for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we created benjshap.com slash question, where you can send us your topic suggestions or marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Or if you'd prefer to have our content delivered to your inbox, we also have a once a week newsletter with links to our audio players, episode summaries, and contact information for our guests. To have more MarTech in your inbox, go to benjshap.com slash newsletter. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.